Good morning. Nice to see all of you uh, gathered for worship this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 today. The scriptures will be uh, behind me on the screen uh, for you to look at if you don't have a Bible with you. But if you would like to follow along and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. You can grab one of those if you'd like, and you can find Matthew 3 on page 808 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks. If you've ever driven further south down Blanding Boulevard, and I know for some of you, this is as far down Blanding as you've ever come or ever want to come uh, because it's always a fight to get through the traffic. But if you have ever tried to go further down Blanding, past our church towards Middleburg, then you have witnessed a human directional. And you say to me, I'm not sure that I have witnessed that human directional. You may not have realized exactly what it is that you were looking at, but even if you haven't driven further down Blanding, I am willing to to put money on the fact that you have witnessed a human directional sometime in your life as you've driven around our city. And so you ask me, what exactly do you mean by a human directional? I'm talking about those people that stand at the corners and spin signs. Those things are called human directionals, I found out recently, which is probably, it sounds better on a resume than sign spinners. But if you're sitting at the light, further down, uh, further down Blanding, at Blanding and College, you're there by where Publix is. If you're sitting at that light, if you've ever sat it before, chances are that you have seen a human directional at that little concrete square. He is usually wearing something that looks like an Incredible Hulk mask, except he's got this bright shock of red hair that is part of the mask, which makes me think maybe he's not the Incredible Hulk, but that's what it looks like. And he is, he's got his AirPods in, and he is dancing to music that only he can hear. He is spinning a sign. He is pointing at you. He is pointing at his sign. And whether you acknowledge him or not, he has your attention. And not only does he have your attention, I know what he's selling. He is the tint guy. I have never had my windows tinted. I have never really considered having my windows tinted. It's not high on my list of priorities. And yet, I know that that guy in the Incredible Hulk mask is the tint guy. I know this because he captured my attention whether I wanted to give it to him or not. I want you to have that image in your mind a little bit today as we consider the person of John the Baptist. Because there's a sense in which John the Baptist was a human directional. He may not have had a sign to spin, and he certainly did not have AirPods, but John the Baptist was going to carry himself in such a way and do the kinds of things that were going to capture your attention, whether you wanted to give it to him or not. Let me tell you how Matthew describes him in Matthew chapter 3. If you're there in Matthew chapter 3, look down at verse 4 with me, if you will. 
In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4, the word of God says this. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Everything about John was unconventional. If you were going to search for words that would describe him to other people, one of the words that you probably would not have chosen to describe him was the word respectable. Everything about John was wild. Many things about John were off-putting. Earlier in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3, Matthew tells us that that John's chosen venue for preaching was the wilderness. And there's this thing about the wilderness. It's wild. The wilderness was a a desolate place. The wilderness is, is the antithesis, the polar opposite of the temple. If you were to think of of God sending somebody into the world to prepare a way for the Lord to make his path straight, then you would assume that God would send somebody a little bit more respectable, a little bit less off-putting, someone who is not going to choose to begin their ministry in the wilderness, but is instead choosing to go to the temple where all of the religious action is. I mean, that's that's what our conventional assumptions would have been for John. And yet John defies those expectations at every turn. I mean, you want, to think about, you want to think about the right strategy to get people's attention for the coming of the Messiah? Think about this strategy. Well, okay, John, what are we going to do? Well, we, we want to get people's attention. We want to let them know. So we've got to go to where all the people are. And John's like, I was actually thinking about going to the wilderness where no one is. Okay, let's roll with that. If you wanted to hear John's preaching, he was going to make you come to him. Everything about John was unconventional. John was not dressed respectably either. The Bible says that he wears this garment of camel hair and a leather belt. I don't know if you've ever touched a camel before. Uh, I had the, uh, the privilege, I guess, of riding a camel that was rather cantankerous at a local fair one time. I had my oldest daughter with me, and that, that camel got spooked by something or someone. And, and camels can actually, like, I don't really know what you call what a horse kind of goes like this. Uh, but whatever you call that word, the, the camel did that to us. And I thought we were going to get flipped off of this camel, on, uh, back onto the, off of this camel's back onto our backs. And that's given me a distaste for camels ever since. But if you've ever touched a camel, then you know that if you're going to choose what you're going to wear and you're going to choose the kind of fabric that touches your skin, you're probably not going to choose camel skin. It's pretty itchy. So John says, I got the strategy. I'm going to go to the desert where nobody is and I'm going to wear weird clothes. Two parts. Now there's significance to the fact that he's doing this. Remember, the angel Gabriel had appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and told him, quoted to him from the last two verses of the book of Malachi, 
where the prophet Malachi is, is, is prophesying that there is going to be an Elijah to come. And this is going to be an Elijah-like figure who's going to do the stuff that, that John did. And there's a description of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8 that says, Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So what the Bible is doing for us is it's drawing sometimes very obvious connections and sometimes subtle connections with the Old Testament, giving us, giving us clues about who this person is and what this person is supposed to do. So John's venue for preaching is unconventional. The clothes that he wears are unconventional. And Matthew tells us that his diet, his, the food that he chooses to eat, still fits in the unconventional, perhaps uncomfortable, and perhaps even repulsive category. John ate wilderness food. He did not have the caterers from Jerusalem bring a spread for him as he carries out his ministry there in the wilderness of Judea. The Bible tells us that he eats locusts and wild honey. There is some, yes, yum, there is some scholarly disagreement here about whether these are actual locusts or whether this is something from a locust tree, which is actually this plant-based thing. So maybe he had the first impossible locust burger. I don't know. But they're probably locusts. And locusts are really big grasshoppers. And uh, really big grasshoppers are something that are normal to us here. Uh, growing up up north, we do not have grasshoppers that even come close to the size of the ones that are here. And that somehow got left out of the process of bringing me to our, this church. Because the first time I saw one, I immediately thought we had fast-forwarded to the book of Revelation, and it was all over. I was looking for blood dripping from the skies, only to find out, no, that's how we grow them here. And John looked at those things and said, yum, I'll have one of those. So as we think about these three factors that are unconventional, if you are going to draw up the play that what's going to win him the what's going to win him the most audience with people, every move he makes seems to be the strategically wrong move. If you're thinking what's going to ingratiate him to other people, what's going to ingratiate this message, what's going to make this message palatable, and John is totally unconcerned with whether it is palatable. And these, this trio, where he is, what he wears, and what he eats, this, this trio of factors all points to something. It points to the flavor of judgment in his ministry. Why does it do that? Well, think about this. When we see the wilderness throughout the scripture, what is the wilderness? It's a place of temptation and a place of judgment. When you think about locusts in the scripture, what, whether they be in Exodus or Revelation, what do they, uh, what do they, what do they symbolize? Judgment. Even the clothes that John wears that draws our attention subtly to, to this passage of Kings that I read for you, and that passage that describes what Elijah is wearing, what Elijah is doing in that 
passage is speaking a message of judgment. So these unconventional, unconventional and somewhat unrespectable factors are all pointing to the flavor, the suggestion of judgment, the suggestion that John is, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, as a, as a prophet caught between the eras, they're all suggesting that he fits in this line. So what is John's message? John, you're flipping the sign around. You're doing some stuff that's getting our attention, okay? What is it that you want us to know, John? You have our attention. John's very important message to proclaim is found in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 3. And to put it simply in just a few words, it is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John eats weird food and wears weird clothes and goes to a place where nobody is so that he can send this message out. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean when something is at hand? It means that something is near. It means that something is about to be. It means that there is something that is coming. It's, it, is a, it is a declaration, it is a proclamation that, that darkness, as we've been singing this morning, is going to be no more. It is, it is the proclamation that the king is coming, that the king is going to set up his kingdom, which is going to be one of righteousness and beauty and grace and justice and holiness from this time forth and forevermore. Who doesn't want that message, right? We'd be excited that the king is just around the corner, that this kingdom that has been so long waited for is coming. And so one might ask the question, okay, John, you have our attention. You've been pointing this out. Which way do we go? Which way is the kingdom? And it is at this point that the symbolism of John's location and his clothing and his diet become more clear because John does not just say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's one word I left out that preceded that statement. And do you know what that word is? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've been reading uh, along with our Advent devotional, and I hope you have, and if you still didn't get, get one, you've still forgotten it, you can jump in at literally any time. There's still some under the tree out there. They're still free, and you can take them home. But if you were reading the Advent devotional with your family or somebody else this week, and you know that we talked about repentance, and repentance is is a change of direction. It is a change of mind. And rather than going, going toward my sin, I want to turn my back on my sin and go towards Christ. This is repentance. It is to agree with God about the nature of our unbelief and to turn toward, toward Jesus in faith. So we have John, this human directional, telling us that the path to the kingdom is paved with repentance. We're calling this series the lantern. Because in John chapter 5, the Bible calls John himself a, a lamp. 
John was this, this small, weak light. If you were to hold it out over a path at night, it would not throw its light very far, but he is this small, weak, meager light that is illuminating the path ahead for the brighter light that's to come, Jesus Christ himself, the kingdom of God that is at hand. And this month we are retracing John's footsteps. We're seeing where he casts his light because we too await an advent, a coming, an appearance of Christ. Last week we saw that John shone a light on our need to believe. But as you can see at the uh, lanterns that are to my right and to my left this morning, what we want to consider a little bit this morning is that John shines a light on our need to repent. John shines a light on our need to repent. The message of repentance repentance is, is everywhere that you find John's prophetic voice. He called on the people to repent and then asked them to demonstrate that repentance in the cleansing waters of his baptismal ministry. And what I'd like to do this morning is ask three questions about this need to repent that John holds out that lamp, that lantern, and shines his light on. The first question is this. What is the obstacle that keeps us from repentance? Because by nature, I want a different path. I love this kingdom news. I'm super excited about the kingdom. Tell me where I need to go. And John says, hold up. The path is paved with repentance. What is the obstacle that keeps us from repentance? Well, the Bible describes John's ministry and it tells us that there are, there are people who are, who are hearing word of this guy that's rather strange and unconventional out in the Judean wilderness and there's this rush of people that are going out to him. All kinds of people are making the journey out into the wilderness to hear John preach. They are, they are hearing his message. They are receiving his baptism. And as this sort of thing starts to grow steam, as you can imagine, it captures the attention of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are wondering, well, what's going on out here in the wilderness? In fact, we're going to see a little bit more of their questions next week because they basically ask him, who do you think you are? Did you not know that Jerusalem is the central city and that the temple is the central place in the central city where God is working? This is a place that is respectable. It is a place that is clean. It is a place that is beautiful. It is a place filled with ritual. Why are you in the wilderness? So the religious leaders decide to pay him a visit. If you're there with me in Matthew, look at verse 7. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
all right? Everything about John is off-putting from what he wears to where he eats to where he is. And when he opens his mouth, he is not building bridges. He is not attempting to ingratiate himself with the religious leaders. The very first thing the Bible says out of his mouth when they come is, you pit of poisonous snakes who warned you. All right, John. And then he bites the head off a locust that he's eating. John called them to repent. And in calling them to repent, he reveals for us one of the biggest obstacles to repentance. One of the biggest obstacles to repentance is the belief that we have nothing to repent of. If you had taken a poll of the citizens of Jerusalem and the the surrounding areas, if you had taken a, a poll for them and you had listed out a whole, a whole bunch of different groups of people and asked, who are the people who are most likely in need of repentance? And you had thrown out Gentiles, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, tax collectors, soldiers, regular citizens, uh, Samaritans. You had thrown out all these people. Do you know who would have come in dead last in the poll of need for repentance? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. If there was one group of people that had nothing for which to repent, it was probably them. Yet John rebukes them in very strong words for taking refuge and solace and comfort in their spiritual pedigree. Now, I've got bad news for us, but I think when we read the Gospels as religious people, as people who have been part of an established church, many of us who have grown up in Christian families or grown with, up with, with, with familiarity, at least, around Christian things, I think when we read the Gospels, we look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and we see them as the enemy when the Gospel writers want us to see ourselves. People that are part of the church are the people who often think that of all people who would be welcomed into God's kingdom, it would have to be us. And so we go merrily along our way, confident of our own heritage of righteousness pointing to the reformation and condemning the unrighteousness of others and then this wild man spins a sign that catches our eye and there's just one word on it that we don't want to see repent John reminded Pharisees and the Sadducees and God and John reminds us this morning that God's plan to gather a people to himself is not dependent on us. 
what is very insulting for these people to hear who had finished the lowest in the poll. It would have been very insulting for them to hear and see John point at some of these children's rocks and say God and tell and hear God has everything to build his kingdom out of what's right here. And we've got some landscaping rocks in our parking lot that fill out the light pole islands in that parking lot, and God could just as easily raise up a people from himself from those rocks. The most, one of the most dangerous places that religious people can be is the place of complacency. To assume that because we've got the heritage and because we show up week in and week out of all people, God must be most pleased with us. There's a second question that we need to ask. Why is there an urgent need to repent? Why is there an urgent need? need to repent. Well, I've already said that everything about John reeks of judgment. It's what he referred to as the wrath to come. John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, this coming kingdom of God that John is announcing, that he's trying to to make smooth the path for the coming Messiah, this This kingdom that is coming is not a kingdom that you can be indifferent towards. Let me say that again. The coming kingdom that John announced was not a kingdom that we could respond to with indifference. It was not a take it or leave it kind of kingdom. The options were and remain today. Repent. Or experience God's judgment. And there is an urgency to to John's words to them that I want to try to recapture for us. Because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, in John's words, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is fire imagery promising judgment. And let me tell you, that same urgency exists today when it comes to God's kingdom. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know why he uses the phrase, as long as it is called today? Because there is going to be a tomorrow. All throughout the scripture, the Bi- the, they are... God is reorienting us toward a truly Christian and spiritual 
focus, where we await the return, the coming of our King. There is no room for complacency. There is no room for fence-sitting. As we await the second coming of Christ as Christians, we are excited about that coming. And we think about the fact that when He comes, He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's going to make things right. There will be no more sickness or illness or death. But let us also remember that that coming is a coming of judgment where in biblical language, the sheep will be separated from the goats and the wheat will be separated from the chaff. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you are with us this morning, then I want you to hear the voice of John calling out, begging you not to be indifferent towards God's kingdom, but to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 and verse uh, 15. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. John's message prepares us for it. Jesus called it out. If you are here with us this morning and you do not know Christ, flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ where you will be saved. you must repent. And repentance is difficult for us because it means the end of our pride. It means admitting that our way is not the right way, that our, the values of our kingdom are, right, are not the right values. It means that we may have wasted years of our lives traveling down the wrong path. But it is not too late because it is still today, not tomorrow. And for those of us who are here this morning and are followers of Jesus, let us be sure that we are not resting on the assurance that of all God people would be happy with, it must be us. This third question. What is the evidence of true repentance? There's a sense in which Repentance is something that happens under the hood. When I acknowledge with my heart and with my mind that I have been going the wrong direction and I want to go another direction, if I cry out to God, I repent of my sins and I put my faith in Christ, there's a sense in which there's something that's happening inside, invisible to the view of others. So what is the evidence, then, of true repentance, if that's something that happens internally, if that's something that happens under the hood? Well, John told the religious leaders that a truly repentant heart is going to necessarily bear fruit. So he greets them warmly by calling them a pit of snakes and then tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you say that you have repented, then there is going to be a flavor of your life. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then he is going to be creating a root system within you that is necessarily going to produce the fruit of a repentant heart. There's going to be visible evidence of change. We don't want to go about 
measuring everything and saying, well, my standard is the standard for every one of what fruit you ought to be offering, and nor are we to compare ourselves with each other because we all come to Jesus from all sorts of different places and bearing fruit is going to look different in every one of our lives, but we're all going to do it. Crowds ask him for examples of what this looks like. They have a little Q&A. And Luke's gospel gives John's answer. In Luke chapter 3, you can either turn there or you can see it on the screen behind me. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? If you're telling us, you're telling us that the path to the kingdom is paved with repentance, what then shall we do? And he answered them, really practically, actually. He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax collecting in the ancient world at that time was not a paid position. The way we think of somebody who works for the IRS is they collect money and it's a standard fee for everybody That's probably too high, but that's another story. But out of that fee, they get paid. Well, the way the IRS worked uh, in that time period was you've got to hustle. You've got to take in enough to meet your quota for Caesar, and whatever is extra over that, you get to keep. So, of course, tax collectors become uh, oftentimes people who are extorting money out of others so that they can live well and still meet their quotas for the empire. Not liked people. But then you have tax collectors who've come out to the wilderness to hear John, and they're hearing this message of repentance, and they're asking the right questions that reveals that something inside truly is happening, because they're asking, what should I do? How do I respond to this? What's going to be the outward fruit? And the tax collectors ask him, and he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers are out there too. Soldiers had the the ability to commandeer anything that they wanted. Soldiers in the empire were not well paid. And so they could stop at your house and demand to stay there. They could claim something that was yours to use for whatever it was that they were doing. And they often did not have a good reputation with the people because they had the power and the ability to take what they wanted. So the soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So let's put this in the vernacular of now. Asking the question, what does repentance look like? John says, repentance looks like Sharing with those who have need. Being content with what you have. And not using power for personal gain. But I got to confess, 
These virtues look to me like the very virtues the modern church is tying itself up in knots trying to justify. Jesus once was teaching that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And one of the questions that comes from the audience is, define neighbor. And that sounds like us sometimes. Why am I not obligated to do the very thing the Bible says I'm obligated to do? And there are whole ministries and peoples dedicated to using the Bible to explain to us why we don't have to obey the Bible. And they build big ministries doing it because they're telling us exactly what we want to hear. I don't want to share. And I am not content with what I have. And I would very much like to be in power. What would you give me for my vote? And what must I sell of my soul for you to have it? That might step on our toes a little bit, but I'm just trying to reflect the ethos of the passage. Because John was utterly concerned, unconcerned about ingratiating himself with people. The stakes were just too high. Right now, we are awaiting the return of the king. And I want you to have that visual picture of John with his leather belt, jar of honey, in the wilderness. That I want you to have that image of that human directional startling us out of our tunnel vision as we're driving down Blanding, just going to the next thing, doing the next thing, I want John to capture your attention. I want him, he's he's waving his arms like this. And he's reminding us that even though the king has come, and even though the king is very much here, and the kingdom is very much present in our midst, there is a kingdom yet to come. Let me tell you briefly about it. I know my time is almost gone here. And in Isaiah chapter 33, Isaiah looks forward to another time. In Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 17, he gives this prophecy. He says, your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feast, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken, but where the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place 
of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Now that might be using language and imagery of another time and place and situation, but you just translate that imagery into imagery that works for us. Isaiah still promises God's people that there is a day coming when you will behold the king in all of his beauty. And you may not think of it in terms of tents and unmovable tent pegs. You may think of it in terms of castles with moats and protection. But whatever it is and however it is that you want to uh, imagine it, there is a new creation coming. John wants us to be excited about that new creation. He wants us to eagerly anticipate the coming of the king. He wants to get our attention as we're traveling down the road of life, just going to the next place, doing the next thing, on autopilot, with our eyes glazed over. And John wants to say, no, 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 the king is coming. He wants us to examine our hearts and rather than assuming that of all God people, of all people that God would be happy with, it would certainly be me. We look at our hearts and say, "Does my life and value system reflect the values of the kingdom, or have I become so ingratiated to the kingdom that is here that I, my life is thoroughly informed by my values, so much so that I use my, this book to go back?" and justify the values that are not in line with this book. We are really good at that. 